Managing Director of California's Capital Corridor Joint Powers Authority, where he runs 16 trains per day in each direction between Sacramento and the Bay Area. Of course, he does that with the help of Ann Whitten and Amtrak, the Air Force. Uh, Jane has been involved in the passenger rail business for 41 years. He's got a lot of experience, equally split between the private and the public sector. He has worked from coast to coast in this country and in Canada, Europe and the Far East on rail transit, commuter rail, intercity rail, and high-speed rail projects. Prior to his work on the Capital Corridor, Gene was Director of Rail Transportation for the Fleur Corporation, where he managed the company's passenger rail projects, including the Florida DOT Fox high-speed rail project in the late 1990s. He also served as Assistant General Manager of the Philadelphia Regional Transit System and was Chief Railroad Services Officer for Boston's MBTA commuter rail system. Gene continues to own a house here in the Orlando area, has two daughters who live in Florida, so we like to see him come back uh, often. Uh, he will talk to us about his extraordinary success in the passenger rail transportation on the Capitol portal. Please join me in welcoming Gene Skorpowski. <laughs> Always nice to come back to Florida and be reminded of those battle scars from the Fox days, but um, life goes on. Uh, there are only four modes of transportation uh, that moves everything, whether it's by water, by road, by air, or by rail. But usually when you get to um, uh, rail, there we go. Get me uh, technically challenged? F5, he said. Bingo. But when you get to rail, usually it's, isn't rail, and you know, isn't that kind of an old-fashioned <laughs> technology? Isn't that, you know, kind of outmoded? It's kind of gone away. It was here. It had its heyday. Now it's past. Well, my usual response is, well, you know, today's rail technology has as much to do with a steam engine as your car does with Henry Ford's Model T. Uh, yeah, your car runs on four rubber tires, but that's about where the similarity ends. And the same is true that you run on a steel rail, but that's pretty much where the similarity ends. Today's locomotives and train technology around the world, including technology here in the United States, is very sophisticated, solid-state circuitry, self-diagnostic, uh, all sorts of components to it. So it's not an old-fashioned technology, but because we don't have a high presence of passenger operation, the perception is that there really isn't a, uh, a, a need here or a desire in the United States. Well, I'm here to talk about California. Now, surprisingly enough, California has a lot of rail. We have three state-supported intercity rail corridors, the Capital Corridor, which was created in 1991, San Joaquin Route, 1976, and the Pacific Surfliner route, which I kind of call a legacy route because when Amtrak was created, there were three round trips at that end. Plus a dedicated network of buses that are painted in the same colors as the California rail cars and do nothing but meet the trains to take people to parts of the state where the tracks don't happen to go to, but people want to travel to. It's a network, and it works. Amtrak has a national connection to California with their four long-distance services. And we had one, again, a legacy service for a commuter, which is between San Francisco and San Jose, the Caltrain commuter service. And three relatively new commuter lines have been built in the last 15 years. Together, the state-supported services cover about 80% of the population base 
of the state of California. That's the rail and the bus network combined. How did it happen? Well, capital funding, capital funding, and capital funding are the magic ingredients to all of this. We've got a steady stream of operating support, and we have funding for the overhauls and capitalized maintenance on the railroad. We've got a good working relationship with the private railroads, and uh, that doesn't come easy, and it does take a lot of work. But as I was talking with your representative from CSX, Jay Westbrook out there, it's a people-to-people -people thing, and that takes time to build up. It's not a corporate-to-corporate issue. We've got a good working relationship with Amtrak. But the bottom line message to all of this is you've got to bring money to the table. I can repeat time and time again, the guys at the Union Pacific said I got another call from somebody that recognized that they have a set of tracks through their town and they don't see a lot of trains on it, and the first thing they want to do is run a passenger train. The second question we ask them when they want to meet is, do you have any money to do this? And if the answer is yes, they'll set a meeting and talk. If the answer is no, come back when you got money. Lots of people have ideas on stuff, but you really have to have the support base in order to be taken seriously. People could spend on the railroad side weeks having meetings with people that want to run things on the railroad that don't have any financial support to back it up. A successful operation will generate not only riders, but the political and the funding support that you need to continue the operation. It's like to say some good management helps along the way. But as you can see here, the, the cooperation in the case of the California services is not a partisan issue in the state of California. In fact, one of our strongest Republican supporters goes out publicly and says, you know, we're stuck in that traffic as Republicans, just like the Democrats are. <laughs> so it's not a partisan issue. And we have had good support at the leadership level. You know, our governor is big into bodybuilding, so I just take some artistic liberty in uh, illustration. Well, where did all this capital money come from that was put in? It was a voter-initiated effort. California, like Florida, is a, is a referendum state where people can collect signatures and force something onto the ballot. Well, i got to tell you, back in 1990, there were three propositions, 108 and 111, supported by the state and the legislature, and then the old citizen one called 116 came along, which was opposed by the governor, by the Department of Transportation, and by the legislature, although there were three or four legislators individually that were shepherding the program. That bond issue passed, and it <laughs> provided a lot of money. Numbers that start with a B. And that is why California has the program that's out there today. The bonds are general obligation bonds, but in California we support those with two forms of gasoline assessments, I'll call them. One is your traditional gasoline tax, the per gallon tax, and like most other states it goes primarily for highway purposes. We also, though, have a sales tax on gasoline, which, by the way, with the price of gasoline, even with reduced use, is not doing too badly in terms of the revenue receipts. But that's where a portion of those funds amortize the bonds that pay for the capital program. It is a 100% state-funded passenger rail program. There are no federal funds in the operation. There are no federal funds in the capital. Now, have there been components of federal funds? Yes, through Amtrak, who purchased some of the rolling stock on the um, Pacific Surfliner uh, corridor. Uh, there have also been some of the communities when they build their intermodal facilities that have some access to federal funding. But these were all done by others, not by the program. This year, uh, the Amtrak budget includes $30 million in capital. Now, we all kind of chuckle at the $30 million for the nation 
for intercity passenger rail. But the important thing here <coughs> was establishment and a recognition of the program. And in fairness, this did come from the administration in terms of putting the proposal in. So there is even a recognition at the administration level, who is not terribly friendly to Amtrak, that there is a need to provide the states with a mechanism to leverage their funding for intercity passenger rail. Um, FRA a couple weeks ago just announced that they have, for that 30 million, they have 25 grants from 22 states. So uh, on a 50-50 basis, we'll see how far and which states get. But uh, 30 million won't take you far. Next year's proposal is a notch up. And of course, we might actually get some real money if these federal programs go ahead. And uh, Frank has talked about the States for Passenger Rail Coalition and uh, the work of the National Commission on uh, 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 Revenue and uh, Policy. How much in California in this last 17 years? $2.7 billion. The bulk of it has gone on the Pacific Surf Liner, which is the second busiest corridor in the country. The San Joaquin required a substantial amount of investment. That's the sixth busiest corridor in the country. And my capital corridor, which is a poor cousin in terms of allocation of funding, is the third busiest corridor in the country. Now, the direct state investment over that time period is $1.7 billion from those bonds. Over 17 years, that's $100 million a year. Well, that's about half the cost of rebuilding one normal highway interchange, unlike your abnormal highway interchange that you're going to dedicate, which is almost a billion dollars. So the amounts of money that we're talking about here are not staggering if you put a regular level of investment into it. <coughs> Your operating subsidy is now about $80 million a year, and that's been basically flat for the, next, for the last seven years, and I'll talk about some of the reasons why you can then stabilize operating subsidy. The results are speaking volumes. Three of Amtrak's six busiest routes are now in California. Fifteen years ago, we weren't even on a radar screen. 20% of all of Amtrak's riders in the country, including all of those riders we keep hearing about in the Northeast Corridor, are in California. And if you take just those three rail routes, that's 43% of the Northeast Corridor ridership, including the branches to Springfield, Albany, and Harrisburg. If you take just the spine, Boston or Washington, we're 53% of the Northeast Corridor. There's a lot of riders out here in California. Now, partnerships have had to been built to do this, and primarily it's been with the local community who own all of the stations. You don't own the stations in the parking lots, so if the parking lot has a problem, there's not any spaces, I give the rider the local phone number of the public works director, and off they go to take care of the problems. The riders have been a very important component, and I'll talk about them a little bit later. The Department of Transportation in California, we have had a... Once the money was appropriated by the, by the voters, it's amazing how much interest it generates on a political and a policy basis, because now you actually have the resources to do something. And the DOT, in fairness, has embraced the program, and our strongest advocate, in fact, is the head of the California Department of Transportation, Will Kempton, who has been uh, co-opted by Mr. Vizalaki into the States for Passenger Rail Coalition, and uh, is a very strong spokesman, again, for uh, federal partnership on intercity passenger rail. Our on-time performance, working with the private railroad. The Union Pacific Railroad is not known for its friendliness to passenger services or for its great on-time reliability. We run about 90% on time. That's better than Amtrak's Northeast Corridor ridership, including the Acela Express trains. So the quality and the quantities of service that we're delivering are enough to attract the ridership basis. The capital I talked about is 100% state grants 
flowing through uh, the bond funds, and our voters just recently have adopted another $400 million, and our State Department of Finance finally has conceded that we do seem to have a lot of riders, so they've authorized us to put out uh, a bid package for additional rail cars. We own all of our own rolling stock. I believe we're the only state that does own all of our rolling stock. I think other states like Washington own some, and Amtrak own some. It's a partnership, and same with North Carolina. We've got a good working relationship on the, on the operating side with the state. The state's policy has been we expect the riders to generate about 50% of the cost of the operation, and the state will pay the other 50%. We're actually exceeding that now, uh, but that took some time to get to the 50% level. So it's not an absolute from day one, but it is the goal to accomplish that. Now, when you get to annual state subsidy, and I use the word subsidy reluctantly because it has such a negative term to it. When we build a highway, we have money, we put the capital money in, and people feel, well, after that, boy, it's, you know, it's, it's a no-cost deal. Well, you have to start thinking about the, quote, annual subsidy to sustain your passenger service in the same way you have to think about the annual cost of maintaining your highway system. There is an ongoing cost that goes along with maintaining that highway that is not fully covered with all of the gas tax revenues that come in. So when you start taking a look at subsidy for the trains, it really has to be considered the same type of investment. You're sustaining the capital investment that you've already made and <laughs> keeping it in good condition. Now, what's happened on the capital corridor? This is a 10-year snapshot. 10 years ago, 1999, on October 1st of 98, was actually uh, was the first start of the capital corridor. We had 463,000 riders. Uh, for that fiscal year at the beginning of our time period with four round trips on the line. You'll see this uh, at the bottom under the green, uh, the big green bars, a uh, 4RT, 6RT, 7RT, the number of round trips that we operated across the line. If you take a look about 2002, you'll see the highest level of state subsidy. It went from about 16 million up to 22.5 million for 10 round trips. Well, today the state operating subsidy is about $20 million. We're running 16 round trips. And how did we do that? Well, the purple line is the growth in ridership and the growth in revenue. <clears throat> when you get to a certain frequency and a certain level of growth, you actually can sustain enough growth in revenue to pay for the growth in your operating cost. This year we're covering about 54% of our operating costs. Back in uh, uh, 2000, uh, 1998 when we started this, we were covering 29.8%. It was pretty shaky with four round trips, but now with 16 round trips, you've got enough service so that it is transportation and not just a chance to ride the train. Those 16 round trips are basically the same frequency of service that Amtrak operates on the Northeast Corridor between Boston and New York today. This is our last 24 months, and you can see we've got about a 15% growth over the last 12 months, and that was on top of about 10 point plus for the prior 12 months. And what this chart didn't show, because I got the July numbers just before um, I came down here, uh, June we were up 16%, 16.6%. For July we were up 32.8%. Uh, the numbers are going off the chart. We are carrying now over 1.6 million passengers on this route for an average trip of over 70 miles. So when you get to 
the uh, crowing that our Secretary of Transportation and our California DOT director, they say those three intercity corridors in California are keeping 550 million vehicle miles traveled off of the California highway system. That has a real dollar value to the highway folks, and it is a complementary system, again, not a competitive system. Our cars, as I mentioned, are all owned by the state of California. They're double-decked. Most of the riders ride on the upper level. Uh, we have full wheelchair accessibility, two wheelchairs on every car, bicycle racks on every car. Uh, we have a group of uh, marketing folks. We can't market our peak hour travel times now because the number of people is so great. We only can market the off-peak. Uh, this group of uh, folks down here in the lower corner are a group of women and a few men uh, on a knitting trip. Um, there was a woman who wrote a book uh, about knitting, and our marketing folks teamed up with the local uh, fabric stores and sewing stores and promoted a special trip down to a knitting convention in San Jose. We had 400 people show up the first year we did this. This last year, we had to run a special train of seven cars full of people. <coughs> On the first train to promote it, the woman who wrote the book, and by the way, the book was called Stitch and Bitch, uh, got on board, <laughs> rode and taught people knitting techniques. The last trip down this last fall when we had the, uh, the, the special train, um, we had over 700 and they knitted caps down to San Jose. It's a 135-mile trip from Sacramento. There were five boxfuls full of kids' caps for kids that have lymphoma and leukemia that were donated uh, that they knitted on the train on the way down. These people have such a good time that now, on a particular Saturday, generally once a month, they'll say, hey, this Saturday we're going. And there's generally 150 to 200 of them that ride the train down and the train back. They never get off the train. All they do is knit, ride, and talk. And uh, it's great for us because we're filling seats that would otherwise carry <coughs> the empty. The uh, group up here in the corner, a very happy group of CC riders, once the service got frequent enough that business travelers could use it, not, a, but not people ride every day, but on a regular basis, they began to socialize. They decide, well, you know, we should have a party, have some fun. Well, they have at least, at least 12 to 14 parties uh, a year. Uh, they pick any day, whether it's St. Patrick's Day, when they hire a band to come on, an Irish band to play, or uh, they'll have Cinco de Mayo, in which case they'll do all kinds of events for uh, celebrating the Mexican uh, uh, independence. Uh, they have then worked together to network amongst each other. Some of them are retirement financiers. Uh, others of them are uh, state officials. And they then decided this is such a good thing and one of the few things they get for the tax money that they pay that they should become a political force. So they are now a political force. And if I send out two, two emails on a piece of legislation in the State House, uh, you can guarantee there'll be 500 pieces of correspondence that show up from the governor's office all the way down. Our organizational structure is we're a completely independent eight-county entity. I believe we're the only locally managed intercity service in the country. I got a 16-member board, two from two members, elected officials from each of the eight counties. And these folks are not shy, and we are not <laughs> subject to all of the you can't lobby because you're a state employee, etc. Uh, so we have a very active group. And we tell our story, and we are very, very proud of what's happened out there, and we want to give other people hope that this can be done if it is structured and you can get the capital funds to carry it out. 
So I just want to say thank you. Um, I apologize. This says that I have performance reports and schedules. I have one of each um, because the box that I sent is someplace between here and California, and I haven't been able to locate it. But if you would like one, see me afterwards, and I'll be happy to send something out to you. Thank you. Thank you.